welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Toot. You say goodbye and I say hello. Hello, hello. It's Album Nerds Podcast. Nice. I got Andy and Don with me. Andy, how you doing, my friend? Dude, that was like one of your best intros yet. I like it. I, I wrote it myself. <laughs> <laughs> totally a dude original. Yeah, doing well, man. Uh, just sitting here reading a, reading a book, checking out the the insides cover of a book. <laughs> oh. wow that was a slow roll yeah don save us uh what do you got to say um take a load <laughs> off andy no, I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, you guys are the worst! I come in with this sweet intro, and then you just tank it. You just tank the whole thing. All right, so we're the album nerds. We talk about well, you guessed it, albums. We love them. Uh, so today on the show, we'll be talking about three of those beautiful things, especially beautiful this week. Uh, we'll be answering a question, and we'll spin the wheel of musical destiny at the end of the show to find out what we'll be talking about next time. But this week, it's all about those album covers. That's what I'm talking about! In 1938, Columbia Records hired Alex Steinweiss at its, as its first art director, and he is credited with inventing the concept of album covers and cover art, uh, replacing the plain covers that were, were used before. And then after his uh, efforts at Columbia, other record companies uh, followed his lead. Uh, so eventually, you know, the album cover became a, a significant part of music consumption. And in some cases, album artwork is just as iconic or more iconic than the songs. Uh, so today, each of us will present an album whose cover, I guess, made us want to listen. The importance of album covers and the artwork, I think, is it still exists, right? I mean, if you're looking at a streaming service, you might, like at the new releases, you might get caught by a cover. Mm-hmm. The Flipping through the bins at a CD or tape or record store or whatever in the, back in the days when everybody had to do that. You would find stuff sometimes just based on a cover, like you never heard of the band, and and that's what it's there for, right? It's not just to express what the album might be about to their existing fans. It's also to try and catch your eye. This week, I listened to uh, several albums, but three of those that made it really close, Jimi Hendrix, Axis Bold is Love. Mm-hmm. He only had three actual studio albums but this is one that my dad had in his collection and it's so crazy i just used to stare at the artwork sit on the floor i didn't know anything about the music i just loved the artwork when i was a kid iron maiden the number of the beast iconic metal album and album cover and megadeth rust in peace from 1990 i was really close on that one but metal is known for its exciting album artwork how'd you guys do yeah it's interesting like i never thought about this when i was the records, but like metal does have like its own style of album artwork generally, especially like with the fonts are very specific for metal. But yeah, I uh, I picked out a few that I was considering. Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly from back in 2015. Really interesting album art. It almost tells the story of the record a little bit right right in the uh, the photograph on the cover there. Miles Davis' Bitches Brew is kind of a cool, like, psychedelic 70s feel to it. A lot of these records I know we've kind of picked out here have kind of a cool, like, 60s, 70s psychedelic feel to it, where it's very, you know, lots of things going on in the story, lots of little hidden details in the artwork, which is interesting. And the other record I'll mention here is a vocal uh, religious record entitled Satan is Real by the Lovin' Brothers. It has one of the goofiest album covers <laughs> I've ever seen, I think. 
Yeah. Or did you guys yeah. haven't come across that? No. I, I saw it on your listening list. You know, I, I listened to a couple of things with just goofy album covers, but yeah, yeah those, those catch your eye sometimes too. And occasionally it's actually something good. Mm-hmm. Was was the, the Lovin' Brothers worth listening to? Actually, it wasn't too bad. I, I almost okay. picked it ironically. I mean, it's church music, but <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't too bad. Well, I've always been a, a, a big fan of Pink Floyd sleeves, uh, but I didn't uh, go in that direction. What? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, some of the best. Uh uh, but anyway, so I made my pick pretty easily. But one album I did want to mention, uh, one of my favorite album covers of all time is uh, is Depeche Mode, A Broken Frame. It's their second album. The artwork was done by Brian Griffin. It's this lady in a field with like a sickle or a scythe or, or whatever you call it. Just this awesome imagery. And, but the album is not great at all. You know, it's before Depeche Mode hit their stride. So it's, uh, you know, it's one where the, the cover is definitely better than the, the album itself. It's a really epic cover. You know, the, the best way to know if an album cover is an iconic, awesome album cover is if it makes a good t-shirt. And two of our three, I think this week, I've seen t-shirts <laughs> of. So why don't we get into it? You choo-choo choose me? is a tool and tool is a science there's <laughs> <laughs> some deep wisdom for you All right, i'm gonna kick things off here with an album from the band's tool talking about their 2001 release lateralis we are gonna play track seven it's a little bit of parabola geometry No parallelogram. <laughs> no. Um, all right, so this is the third studio album for the four-piece from Los Angeles, California. A very interesting record, I think. Uh, kind of a evolution of sorts uh, from their previous two works. My three words I used to describe this record are Tool Enters Their Final Form. Uh, I think they really kind of mature here. Both in terms of the music, the composition is, uh, it's pretty complex here at times or uh, um, often. And lyrically, I feel like Maynard has, has grown up a lot. A lot of the, the angst that we hear in their earlier records. Uh, yeah, that's the good stuff. <laughs> it's been replaced here by like more of a spiritual calmness, I guess I would say, or insightfulness. I, I struggle a little bit with his lyrics on this record because sometimes they're a little bit on the edge of, of cheesy. But I think overall, they present a very different package here than they have in the past, and I think it works pretty well. Let's quickly talk about the album art. The artwork is done by an American painter known as Alex Gray, who is known for his psychedelic sacred art style, is what he calls it. It kind of looks like if you were reading like a medical illustration book on acid, I think that's kind of the approach you would get. A lot of like human figures and a lot of like uh, body systems, I guess. So the album, the artwork on, on Lateralus is really cool. Like I, the CD copy I have is, it's like a four or five page cover, I guess I would say, of different translucent layers. And they're all the same image of the body. That's how that's how anatomy books used to work. My my dad had those from science classes in college, and the, the textbook with all the words and stuff. But then there'd be plastic pages, so you could layer on yeah. the organs and stuff like that. Kind of see how things la- match up over each other. 
Right. There's some cool little Easter eggs hidden in there. And, and the art style, I think, is very iconic and, and beautiful. Did you guys have any specific thoughts on the artwork? I remember seeing it quite a bit. I was working at a record store at the time. I was not uh, a Tool fan of this phase of their career. By then, the Tool fans had taken over. <laughs> like This was the one that made all of their, their calculations about their superiority <laughs> correct. Right. Now we have the proofs to show. <laughs> we, we had a lot of return copies of it. So I saw the oh, artwork really? because, yeah. Oh, scandalous. I'm not sure. It's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to figure out if if the album reflects the music or the music reflects the, the artwork. So, like, when I see that album cover, I feel like it looks like it sounds. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I wonder if it would be different, like, if you switch the cover on that album and made it, like, bright yellow and, like, a flower or something, like a happy-looking, <laughs> you know, cover, yeah. would it would it change you know, how I feel about the album. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think like that album cover, you know, just feels like, you know, what it sounds like. Yeah, it feels like it contributes to the work almost, just to the idea of the work as almost as much as the music. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's play a little bit from the lead single here. This is Schism. Juxtaposed. Yes. I mean, I just it just feels Juxtaposed. like the, 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 the thesaurus was busy when they were writing this album. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I was working in, in rock radio at the time, and I, I remember this was like the you know a, a big song. You know, as as rock radio was dying, you know, this was one of the things that <laughs> kept it going. You know, uh, f- for a few more gasps. Right. But uh, yeah, I always uh, I, I always liked this this song a lot. Yeah, apparently it's it's renowned for its uh, use of uncommon time signatures, which is something I've I've liked about Tool. Is you know, it's not all in in four four time. Uh, and in fact, um, according to one analysis, the song alters meter like forty seven times. So it starts out in like five four time, then it's in four four, then five eight, then seven eight. So yeah, they get uh, they get a little crazy. Yeah, the the title track I I read was like Fibonacci sequences and all. Yeah. This stuff. like mm-hmm. to me, it just all feels very contrived. I don't know. It felt fake to me at the time, and and listening to it now, it, it just it didn't inspire anything in me, which is odd. Interesting. Well, the uh, the the words I chose to describe the album are my kind of metal um, because because uh, <laughs> it is it, it is what I like. Uh, it's um, it, you know it's dark and depressing. Um, it's it's progressive. Um, you know it's and yeah it's pretentious. <laughs> so you know those those are things I tend to like. <laughs> I think we can all yeah, agree I, it's a little pretentious. <laughs> I prefer, yeah, I prefer more honesty for the most part in in, in my music. Yeah, I'm not interested yeah. in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not dramatic enough. Yeah, I mean, well, these guys took like five years, which is pretty common for them between records. You could tell they put a lot of thought, and maybe almost too much thought, into the mm-hmm. composition of this record. Like they really squeeze every possible second out of the, the CD runtime length that they they could have. Mm, yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> I think not always to the betterment of the album as a whole. Um, yeah, it is a lot to to take in. Um, you know, I mean, I've been listening to it for a week, and I still don't feel like I've you know really processed it. You know, there's just there's so much. 
That's a great point because that is probably my problem here. I certainly didn't. I mean, I probably have, you know, if you had the little upload thing on your screen, you're trying to, or or download thing, you're trying to download a file, it's probably at 5% still, (laughs) you know? Like, so (laughs) some of my analysis here may be unfair because I listened to it maybe six times and that's not enough, I don't think. Yeah. Remind me, uh, dude, are you you a Tool fan from the earlier records or is this totally out of left field for you? I was never a fan per se just kind of passed me by when they came on the scene i was more into the grunge thing right um i liked undertow i do and i still enjoy that album it's got a reasonable length it's it's varied in sound it's a little more angry so that's kind of my more my yeah i i would prefer that tool in my toolbox (laughs) nice all right, well, why don't we play one of those more aggressive songs? Probably the most aggressive song on the record. It's a little bit of Ticks and Leeches. Yeah, listening to this record, this was always my respite. This was my, like, like okay, <laughs> here, here comes the one that isn't, as drony as the rest uh, and <laughs> yeah. a, a little bit more of, of the side of them that I prefer. Yeah, definitely harkens back to Undertow a bit more than yes. anything else here. So the three words I use to describe this album are turtle on its back. You know, when a turtle's on its back and it can't roll over and it's flailing around, that's that's kind of what this feels like to me. Like there's a lot of fight there, but it doesn't go anywhere, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nice analogy. I, think, I was pretty proud of myself. Um, I know it's held up as flawless, and maybe it is. It's just not as intriguing to me when it's too. It's so perfect, you know. And I think that was. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on, but it just it just didn't take me anywhere. And and I, I, I'll promise to give it more time. I don't want any Tool fans coming after me. <laughs> you gotta be careful of the Tool fans. It's kind of like Radiohead Kid A. Which, again, for me, that's where I was like, I think I'm done with Radiohead. It's just trying too hard for me. I, I like hearing guitars and honest recourse and not a bunch of, I don't know, noise for noise sake. But It's like you're, you're doing the, uh, in a job interview when yeah. they ask you your weaknesses, you're doing like the, it's, it's too <laughs> yes. perfect. Yes, like, exactly. Too hard. But I that's mean. kind of what I feel like this is, you know? The the last thing I wanted I wanted to mention was the thing I love about Tool is the bass playing the way that the bass is used to drive the sound and that's their that's the the common thread through their discography is that bass sound and, and I really do enjoy that yeah yeah the low end in Tool I think is just hands down some of the best in rock at least modern rock. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a little on the fence here. Like, I really loved this record when it came out, and I was right at the right age yes. where this kind of stuff was resonating with me. <laughs> I was like 20 or so. Yes, you would have been one of the judgmental college kids that uh, came into the store. <laughs> yes, put my nose up and everything else. <laughs> um, but looking back on it, I'm not as infatuated with it as I used to be. Um, so I don't know if I want to nominate this for the Ainhoffs or not. Initially, I was like, this is a shoo-in, because it's probably the most sophisticated tool record that I get, get down with, but I think I'm going to hold back. Well, it's, my, well. it's my thought at the moment. We can revisit this at the end of the year. Maybe uh, let Don and I soak it in a little bit more, and we'll talk about it. Okay. Sounds good. So once again, the album is Lateralless by Tool. Really awesome artwork. If you happen to get your hands on a physical, physical copy, it's 
pretty spellbinding, I think. Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions. It's that time again where we ask ourselves a question. Album covers, the packaging, the artwork, the mystery, the fun of that. What are other examples of packaging being as important as the products inside? Discuss. <laughs> All right. Uh, first thing came to mind is the, the banana. <laughs> I think perhaps nature's most perfect package. Mm-hmm. Um, also a, a iconic album cover. True, true. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was voted number one by Rolling Stone or someone, I believe. Yeah, the Velvet Underground with Nico, correct? Yep. Let, let's make sure and say yep. it. Mm-hmm. Done by Andy Warhol. Yep. Uh, also by Mother Nature. So I'm a yes. fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'll mention, which is probably you guys don't know what I'm talking about, but have you ever seen like your wife's or girlfriend's uh, makeup like yeah, palettes that they have, like these these boxes that they have? are some of the most incredible packaging I've ever seen in my life. My wife has one that's like uh, Alice in Wonderland themed and there's like little characters that come with it and like it's the whole thing is just beautifully ornate package just for like little pieces of makeup in there. Uh, I'm always impressed by that. I wish wish guys had something like that to be honest. Yeah, I just uh, picture you in front of your wife's vanity mirror smearing lipstick on your face slowly <laughs> listening to forever young i want to be <laughs> thank you for that mental image let's move on <laughs> so actually my answer i, I have to credit uh rick springfield because uh, i saw him on like some talk show or something and, and he was going through like his his uh, star wars action figure collection you know he pointed out that he doesn't take them out of the package and he said you know, the packaging is so much better than the action figure itself. You know, so you've got these beautiful <laughs> pictures of uh, of these monsters or aliens or whatever. And then you but then you open it up and like, you know, the it's just this little dude, you know, that's I don't know. It, the action figures do not measure up to, to the art. I think that's true for a, a lot of toys. Like I think about stupid stuff like candies. When I was a kid, there are certain candies, the packaging that outweighed the candy. Nerds, for instance, the box had two sides and little slidey top thing and the grape and orange or whatever. So you could have two flavors and each side had its own slidey top. Just stupid stuff like yeah, that. Cool. Packaging sucking you in. Candy cigarettes when I was a kid. They tasted oh, yeah. terrible, oh but they looked yeah. like cigarettes. So I wanted to have them so I could look like right. a grown up. So yeah, uh, packaging of things for kids is, is probably the most dangerous place to be as an artist because you're definitely trying to manipulate somebody for that's <laughs> candy or toys um the uh did you ever see that water that's like in the giant test tube it's like a i think it's called voss or oh something? yes yes yeah. that's where the fiji yeah. and stuff that's where they get the grown-ups is on the fancy bottled water <laughs> yeah we are a sucker for good packaging yes we are that's america so how about y'all why don't you throw some examples of packaging being as important, if not more important, than the product inside. Elmners.com slash Discord. Great band here. The band. My hero. Yeah. My hero. The album whose uh, artwork uh, drew me in was Music from Big Pink uh, by The Band. I was so, like, when I saw in your, you know, you posted what it was going to be, and I saw the word pink, I'm like... Freaking Pink Floyd again. So, not that I don't enjoy Pink Floyd, but. <laughs> Gotta get pink in there somehow. Yeah. 
Okay, well, let's uh, let's hear uh, probably the most known track from the album. Uh, this is The Weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. And it is uh, take a load off Fanny, not Andy. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so that song is uh, written by uh, Robbie Robertson, uh, who's a, a member of the band. Uh, Robertson had noticed that the interior of his guitar included a stamp um, saying that it was manufactured in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Um, so he started crafting a, a song about a traveler's experiences arriving in this town called Nazareth. And, you know, the traveler's friend Fanny uh, has act, asked him to, to look up some of her friends. Uh, so all the people that, that he encounters in the song were, were actually um, based on people in the band members' lives. To be honest with you, I've never been able to, to make sense of, of the lyrics of, of the song. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I read that Robertson actually was inspired by movies from a, a Spanish filmmaker, um, Luis uh, Buñuel, Buñuel, whose film, films are kind of you know surreal. In them, generally, the the characters are in like predicaments that you know kind of challenge their their morality. So I, I guess if you you know listen closely to the lyrics of that song, you know you've got some of that going on. That's a that's a huge song. I, I know we've talked in the past about what songs would be part of like. You know, the new American songbook. Uh, I think that's one of them. I agree. And of course, it was also featured in uh, the film Easy Rider, uh, also in the uh, in the big chill. The three words I, I chose to describe the album are they really are, uh, as in they really are the band yeah. or like the, the ultimate band. I don't get it. Because <laughs> they're <laughs> they're tremendous uh, musicians. Um, they're really tight and, and polished. They were actually a, the backing band for this uh, rockabilly uh, artist, Ronnie Hawkins. Right? So they were known as the the Hawks. Um, and then they were, of course, the the backing band for for Dylan when he went electric uh, for a couple of years. So they're just you know really tight. Uh, but they're also, I mean, they're they're creative, they're progressive, but they're also informed by kind of old country and and folk. You know, they're they're drawing on the past, but but they still sound kind of new and, and fresh. It's like mountain music, kind of. It is. Yeah. yeah. And they're from Ontario, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so a little background uh, on the band. Um, so they are a Canadian-American band. Uh, four, uh, four of them are Canadian. One is American. They were formed in Toronto in 1967. Uh, Rick Danko on bass and fiddle, LaVon Helms on drums, Garth Hudson on piano and organ, Richard Manuel on piano and organ, and then uh, Robbie Robertson on guitar. Uh, and then Manuel Danko and Helms handle the, the vocals. So uh, uh, as far as the artwork, where I went to college, we had this weird situation where um, there was this independent bookshop uh, that was run by a bunch of hippies. And that's where people would buy their textbooks rather than the, the official campus bookstore. Uh, but at this bookstore was a poster of this this album, Music from Big Pink. And it's a, it's a painting actually done by Bob Dylan. You know, apparently, I think it's supposed to be the band. There's actually six members. So I think maybe one of them is supposed to be Dylan. Uh, and then there's like an elephant. <laughs> but that was a time where I was, <laughs> I, I was sort of getting into the classic rock and and like the the hippie world and stuff. So it was just a, a cover that was interesting and and drew me in. By the way, Big Pink refers to uh, the house where they wrote uh, a lot of these songs in uh, Sagardy's, uh New York, uh, right by Woodstock, which is actually where Woodstock '94 uh, took place. Let's hear another one. This is "I Shall Be Released."
sounds painful to sing. It's up there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's the final track on the album, and it's one of my favorites. It's it's I I don't even know if I really knew who it was. It's just a song I've always enjoyed. So listening to this album, I was it was really cool to have that be the closer. Written by Bob Dylan, recorded by Bob Dylan on a few occasions. Man. Him getting up to those those levels, not not <laughs> <laughs> not quite as as peaceful as this. Any day now. Any day now. Any day muscles. So it, it it's another song that uh, Bob Dylan was into people being incarcerated, maybe unfairly or unjustly, people that needed to be released, whether it's from a, a real prison or a prison of the mind, whatever. Uh, but it's a, it's it's just a really good closer. It's just, at the end of the album, it's one of those that makes you be like, oh yeah, I could do that again. And that's always a, a really good indicator. I didn't know about Bob Dylan painting that cover. That makes it certainly more interesting. The three words I used to describe this album, drinking man's dead. So it's got, uh, it's kind of got a Grateful Dead vibe to it at times, the way that they play together and there's a a jamminess to it. Like I said, mountain music earlier, but it sounds more like whiskey than weed. So that's, Mm. you know, that's where I kind (laughs) of had that in my mind. It's, It's rootsy and down to earth a little bit more so than the Grateful Dead, but you know, around the same time period and probably uh, some of some people that liked one probably liked the other. Yeah, definitely a, a little bit tighter than the than the dead. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay, well let's uh, let's hear more. Uh, this is Chest Fever. Yeah, I love that groove that I get into on that track. Really uh, stood out to me. Uh, three words I used to describe Music from the Big Pig are Bob sent me. That's my my connection to the band is kind of knowing them as the band of Bob. But th- this album really showed me that there are a lot more kind of, you know, they really do stand on their own and uh, have a pretty unique sound of, the, of their own, I, which it was hard to really classify. I mean, definitely Roots, roots Rock, uh, Folk. But there's elements of like R&B in there as well. And even like that song we played at the closing cut there, I hear like some gospel elements in there, which I wasn't expecting. So yeah, this is a pretty dense record, I would say. Kind of in some ways like the Tool record. I feel like it really takes a long time to settle in. And I've been listening to it for about a week now and I'm starting to appreciate starting to kind of open up to me a little bit like a, like a fine wine. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if I'm 100% understanding the full flavor of it yet, but I'm, in, I'm enjoying the notes I'm getting so far. <laughs> notes. Oh, yes. yes. I was just going to say you should probably uh, sip some of Maynard James Keenan's wine while <laughs> you listen right. while you listen to it. Yeah, he does wine yeah. a bit. Oh, my gosh. God, that's the puns are plentiful. <laughs> <laughs> that one deserves a, f- a flush. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think this, this is a really interesting record. I, I What I found most interesting, perhaps, was how well it's recorded and how you can really hear each instrument, I think, is, is nice. But I love that freaking organ, man. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he comes in, he fucking crushes. Uh, I got to shout out the organist real quick. His name is Garth Hudson. I found him to be quite compelling. He's not on every track, but the ones he's on, I think, are some of the best. Um, um, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb, and I'm going to nominate music from Big Pink for the album nerds hall of fame. (laughs) 
think uh i always listen to the last waltz as kind of and i know that's live but that was always kind of my go-to the band album i would have said i don't think so it, it, when i when we first started listening to this for this week but after listening to it uh i would say yes i mean it is it does showcase as andy was saying it showcases who they are as a group of musicians without there is there is good if not better without bob on their, on their, with their own rules. So I say absolutely yes. All right, Andy. Oh boy, gonna do Don Dirty like I've been doing the dude. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think. I mean, I'm I'm not a hundred percent, and like I said, I don't feel like I have a quite absorbed everything this album has to offer. But what I have gotten, I think, is really good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna trust in Don's expertise here wow <laughs> I, future andy will, will agree with the statement that i will i will usher the welcome to the big pink or welcome to the big pink everyone yeah so good so congratulations to the band with music from Big Pink. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! They're back! Man. I mean, I pretty much gave it all away last week at the end of the show when I said, you know, album covers like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles, because, well, here we are, folks. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're <laughs> a pepper, wouldn't you like to it is, it is beautiful artwork. Uh, it's iconic. There's books about it. But largely, I've listened to that album probably a thousand times in my life, and I didn't want to have to do a bunch of research. So... <laughs> Now, I've listened to this album so many times, and I know it like the back of my hand, so I, I felt compelled to kind of pick the album that is one of quintessentially those that it's considered to have the best album artwork, besides also the content inside. So why don't we start off with the final track on the album, A Day in Life. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grave. We can't uh, we can't dissect this album in five to ten minutes, so we're gonna try and keep it on the surface as much as possible. That song could have a podcast, an hour long podcast, just about that song. That's such a cool song. That's such I I think that's maybe one of their best songs. Maybe one of the coolest closers I've ever ever heard. <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, uh, the Album Divers podcast is a really good episode on the whole album, and I was honored to be a guest, a uh, brief guest, and that was the song I chose as my favorite on the album. It had a little bit on there. So if someone wants to go listen to that and listen to an hour and a half or whatever it is about every song, go for it. It's a great show. <laughs> The three words I used to describe this album were fixing a hole. This is an album that has such a deep emotional impact on people, and music can fill you up, and I feel like this 
kind of fills the holes you know that uh, music can do that and the beatles did that for a ton of people they they changed the trajectory of popular music and what people thought an album was and uh i think they fixed that hole in my soul that's beautiful man i know i'm nailing it today <laughs> so this was their eighth studio album they had stopped touring we all kind of know the story revolver came out they took a break after that and uh they took time in the studio to get the creative juices flowing, choosing this loose concept of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band allowed them to then make songs that were outside of everything they had been doing because they could pretend like it was from the perspective of that band, right? So they don't have to take ownership. And and that song, that was that was the one, when, when I first listened to this record, my dad was transferring it to cassette from LP. And I was probably in sixth grade or so, and I was just staring at it, reading the liner notes, looking at the list of all the characters on the cover. It has a number system and tells you who's who, and I was just completely fascinated. And I thought the album was over when the Sgt. Pepper, the second Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, like the finale. And then this mm -hmm. song starts with that, I read the news today, oh boy, and just the dark imagery there, and then the the lighter imagery that Paul brings in and those transitions between them, the orchestration and the swells and the, the end of the song with that piano boom, you know, it's just, a, it made me love the Beatles mm -hmm. and it made me want to listen to that record every day of my life through high school and college and into my twenties. So um, <laughs> every single day of my life, there you Sorry. go. <laughs> Got to get Sorry. you into my life. <laughs> So who are some of the characters on the cover there? It's, I don't know if I really know a lot of the... Well, the Beatles um, are wearing costumes as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And there's like old Beatles in wax or something, I think, too. Right? Yes, yes. The the mop tops, the Fab Four version of them that was doing the She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's wax figures. I think they're Madame Tussauds. The cover image was created by Jan Haworth and Peter Blake. Uh, they won a Grammy for the best album cover, Graphic Arts, in 1967. So we've got, God, man, uh, Alistair Crowley, Mae West, W.C. Fields, Carl Jung, Edgar Allan Poe, Fred Astaire, Dylan Thomas, Aldous Huxley, William S. Burroughs. I mean, it's a huge list. You can find it online. Stuart Sutcliffe, the original uh, bassist for the Beatles, is listed there. Hmm. Uh, Marlon Brando. I mean, it goes on and on. There's, there's like four rows or something, so... Uh, I, I don't want to go over all of them, but either find it online or pull out your copy of the album and read through it because I, I like to do that. I was just going to ask, is there any connection or any reason these people, these certain people are represented? I think it's it's icons of, of human history, uh, of creative, and also, you know, the Beatles at this point were getting more spiritual, looking more inward. So, like having uh, philosophers and, and uh, entertainers, people who shaped Mm -hmm. shaped where we were at that point um, in pop culture, I think, and, and in culture in general. Uh, but the packaging itself is amazing. There was like Sergeant Pepper things you could cut out, you know, like Sergeant stripes to put on your shirt or whatever. There, it's just, oh, cool. and it supposedly is one of the first to have the full lyrics as a part of the liner notes. Previously on records, you'd the liner notes had print on them, but it was advertisements for other albums from the same <laughs> record label, you know? Right, so right. they used to sell books and stuff separately with lyrics, but they included it in the album. So why don't we uh, listen to another song and I'll let you guys talk. <laughs> this is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So 
sound of Vincent McCartney on that track, right? On the uh, opening cut there. Yeah, uh, just has such like a, like a circus feel to that song. I think really encapsulates the vibe on the rest of the record, which is also on the album art. And it has like that a rock bass to it, but then there's also like a bunch of like weird effects and just like, just kind of weird, kind of very eclectic sounding, which I think is is what you get on the rest of the record. Got all these different personalities coming together. The three words that I use to describe this are a most beautiful mess. <laughs> There's a lot going on sonically on this record. Like, like uh, yep. the dude alluded to, they kind of open the floodgates so there are different personalities and eccentricities and they're all represented here. But somehow it works. It all f- somehow fits together, which doesn't seem like on paper it would make any coherent sense, but it does. I think the things that stood out to me in particular was the remaster I listened to sounds fantastic. Like you can hear everybody very clearly. I particularly for some reason this time through really picked up on Ringo on a couple tracks. I thought he's actually sounded really good on this album. I, I think one of the things about these remasters of these Beatles records, the way that they were recorded previously, like Ringo's always gotten a bad rap as being a boring drummer. He's mm. good, man. And I think hearing yeah. it a little clearer, like he helped define their sound and he's completely underrated yeah. for his part there. And I think these remasters, when they plump it up and you hear everything correct, I think it, it shines a light on that. So I'm glad he's uh, still around to maybe read or hear some of these comments. The people stop bagging on poor Ringo. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. I think he is underrated. Yeah, I don't know if I would put this as my favorite Beatles album, but I think, you know, obviously it's iconic for a reason. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of great songs on here. Whichever album I'm listening to at the time is my favorite Beatles album. <laughs> Yeah. It always happens. Yeah, yeah that, I can see how that'd be. That's kind of my thing too. Um, this one is usually not my favorite per se, just because it feels a bit scattered at times, but it's supposed to be woven together in some fashion, being this fictitious band. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the songs like uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, uh, She's Leaving Home for the Benefit of Mr. Kite when I'm 64, just have these iconic sounds to them there's they're so unique among what was happening at that time and i think that's what sets us apart from from everything else all right so why don't we listen to another track something uh, that george brings to us that's george harrison within you without you Surprisingly, that song is in 4-4 time, uh, except for at the, like, the very end of those like lyrical passages. I'm obsessed with time signatures, even though I don't understand them. Uh, that song, uh, as you mentioned, is uh, written and performed by George Harrison, uh, along with uh, members of uh, what was known as the, the Asian Music Circle. Um, includes a lot of Indian instrumentation, such as sitar, tambura, dilruba, and tabla. And then probably an underrated part of, of the song is the, uh, the orchestration uh, that was uh, you know, put together by, uh, by George Martin. Yeah, I, 
I think this tends to be, you know, one of the more divisive tracks on the album, but but I, I've always loved it. Uh, I just think lyrically it's it's really cool. Uh, supposedly it uh, was inspired by a conversation that George Harrison was having with uh, Klaus Vorman, whose name you've probably heard before. He played bass on a lot of their, their solo albums. But they, they were having a conversation talking about the metaphysical space that prevents individuals from recognizing the natural forces uniting the world. Yeah, we just had that conversation the other day. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even the, the title is clever, you know, within you, without you, you know. Yeah, just uh, love that love that track. Uh, begins uh, side, uh, side B. The words I chose to describe the album, um, guaranteed to raise a smile. My experience is, is the, the same as due. You know, I've listened to this uh, uh, a thousand times, uh, and and I still I, I still love it. Uh, as Andy mentioned, you know, the there's lots of different sounds going on. You know, the the songs they don't really seem to have any connection, but somehow there's just some sort of tie through through all of it, and it works as a, as one great artwork. So you do have that blend of. What John Lennon described as as Paul's granny music. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so songs like She's Leaving Home and When I'm 64, you know, when those come on, I think I mentioned this when we did Revolver, when those come on, I'm kind of like, oh, all right, Paul. But then, you know, a, a couple of seconds in, I'm singing yeah. along and, and humming <laughs> well, along. I'm 64 with the whoop, whoop, whoop. It's like, come yeah. on. And then before you know it, you're singing along to every word. I completely agree. <laughs> the lyrics are so good. Like, you can't deny how good it is. Uh, and then you got John just doing sort of fantasy oriented things like taking newspaper stories and yeah. and you know just turning it into something more that's kind of uh, what he was doing a lot of in this period and of course drugs 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 right we've got to mention that a lot of this stuff there's drug references they were all experimenting with hallucinogens and different things and uh, that certainly painted a lot of the psychedelic ambiance here and I think some of what kicked that sound off for other bands they do such a good job with sort of mixing the the psychedelica but with melody you know so it's still even though it's weird like lucy in the sky with diamonds is obviously like a, an acid trip kind of thing but it's still even when you're not high it you know, just has a great melody you, you can sing along to not that i would know <laughs> well we talked about the top with taking on the persona of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Like, it, they could have gone the easy road and just had it be, like, the, the opening track says who they are and, and all that stuff. They could have had it be about these characters of the band or whatever. Instead, they used it to experiment. I mean, it's not quite as experimental or mind-opening as what Garth Brooks did when he took on the character of yes. Chris Gaines and put out an album. But... <laughs> Dude is, is winking hard at the, at the camera. You know, just pass it along for the audience. Listeners. Winking with both eyes. It's called blinking. <laughs> I wonder if Chris Gaines would have been on Hee Haw. <laughs> no way. He was a rocker, man. <laughs> <laughs> But, I, you know, this album is iconic. It's huge. The album cover is iconic. Forget about, like, even separate from the music. It's just the total package. And anyone that hasn't heard it or hasn't heard it in a long time needs to sit down and experience it once again. And, of course, this is a this is a duh. Almost every Beatles album would make it in my eyes. Um, but this one, certainly. I want to keep it really short and sweet here. Obviously, yes. Album Nerds Hall of Fame. Let's do it. I, I, I will break my streak here. And uh, agree with you on this one, buddy. <laughs> 
Nice. Definitely. So you say yes. I say, <laughs> uh, I'll say, I'll say yes to, <laughs> of course. Nice. <laughs> All right. So that was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles, 1967. Go check it out. What did we learn about the concept of album covers and their importance in the music and the packaging and the experience? Um, one thing that occurred to me is, unlike most packaging, usually it's for the initial appeal, give you an impression of what the product is and entice you to buy it. Album art can definitely do that, but I think it also has that other layer where you can be a compliment to the music and something you can experience as you're experiencing the music and maybe enhance that experience a little bit. I think like that Beatles record is a perfect example where you can you know dig into some of these characters they represent and read all the lyrics and the tool record i think also you know nicely makes you think a little deeper about maybe what the music is is getting at and uh, i think that's pretty powerful and there's not a lot of art like that i can think of that has these two components so tied so closely together i mean you can go through a museum and maybe they'll listen to little things on the headphones and tell you about the artwork but this feels much more cohesive to me than, than most forms of art which I, I really like yeah and it's um w- you know with music videos you have the the juxtaposition thanks Maynard <laughs> of uh, uh, of the the visual and the the audio but I don't like that as much as the the album cover because I think you know a, a video can can be you know terribly distracting and if it's not done right you know I, I think you can lose the the overall impact but the album cover I think leaves more to interpretation mm-hmm. and subjective experience or, or something. So, yeah, I, I still love staring at a, an album cover and listening. What I really thought about was the partnership between artist and artist, the musical artists, the bands, and then the photographer or the painter uh, that comes up with the artwork. It's a collaboration, and I think I hadn't really thought about that, and that's, that's really cool mm-hmm. because someone is trying to represent – what your work of art is in a different, you know, with your eyes instead of your ears. And I think that's just a really cool partnership. And, uh, and that's one to grow on. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. All right, boys and girls, gather around. Come gather around, people now. We're oh my God. <laughs> there we go. That's, I'm out of control. Right. <laughs> do you want to do the wheel intro, Don? I, I've done it so many times. No. I feel like I may be running out of steam here. Honestly, I have had enough of this rubbish. I will give myself a spin. Your musical destiny, should you choose to accept it, will take you all the way to the year 1974. Choose an album that appeared on the Billboard Top 40 in 1974. As always, enjoy. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. So this is the Billboard US sales. What's your favorite album from 1974? What's your favorite album cover? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Nerds. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you for joining us on the Album Nerds podcast. Next week, 
We'll see you, and we'll be talking about top 40 albums from the year 1974 or 1974. Oh, show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next week. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. <laughs> Good morning. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, Andy, can you do a rooster? Ooh, that's good. Anytime we need pet sounds, we go to Andy. <laughs> oh, that's why they keep me around. <laughs> We're cockadoodle done here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm stopping the nonsense.